All right, everyone. Welcome. We are here. Thanks to awesome technology that's working today. Welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I am Carter, and I am joined, as always, by a perpetually on-time, hat-wearing co-host, <laughs> Carrie Smith. Hi, Carter. I saw what you said in chat. <laughs> hey, what are you waiting for? What are you an talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, you can't prove who had the unsafe space account at the time so <clears throat> so uh today on deprogrammed you are surprising me with a, a a riveting book by robin d'angelo is that right yeah so um a lot of our audience and i'm also very you know, interested in this subject. A lot of people seem to be very interested in specifically social justice in education, um, because as we know, that's where a lot of indoctrination starts. And once you, you know, you control a kid's thought process through college, it's going to be pretty difficult to get them to wake up after that. And so I went and I got, I can't believe I paid for this. I got this book. Can everyone see it? The title is, Is Everyone Really Equal? Which is actually a good question. The answer is no. But um, and the subtitle is, An Introduction to Key Concepts in Social Justice Education. And it's written by uh, Aslam Sensoy and Carrie's favorite, Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo, so. if you guys will remember, is the one who, she's the white woman who coined the term white fragility which we did a whole episode about her if you haven't seen it i thought it was a pretty good one we did so i'm not going to review the whole book or anything we're just going to we're just going to walk through we're going to talk about chapter one that's we're just going to do one chapter interesting stuff to talk about if people like this we'll you know walk through future chapters and future episodes but um i think most of what you need to know about the book is is uh encapsulated in the acknowledgments, actually, in the first sentence of the acknowledgments, Carrie. Do you want to guess what it says? Um, does she acknowledge marginalized people? Does she do a land blessing? Bing, 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 bing. It is... Uh, she does a land blessing? Style opening. The first sentence is, we begin this text by acknowledging that we conduct our scholarship and teaching on the unceded ancestral territories of various <laughs> <laughs> on what is today identified as Canada and the United States. And then, and then there is a, just in case you wanted to know, there's a map. Here's where some indigenous peoples were, I guess. Uh, map of indigenous communities throughout North America. Now this is a, this map is kind of false. Like there's, Entire things that say plains, plateaus, uh, Great Basin. I'm just going to read. That's going to prompt me to just read one thing. Someone sent me. I know this is going to sound unrelated, but it's not. Someone sent me Michael Crichton's essay from a few years ago, uh, several years ago, on uh, environmentalism. And I just like to, when people acknowledge ancestral lands of indigenous people. I just, I'm going to read this, this part. I like to remind everyone of this. Um, and he writes, and what about indigenous peoples? 
living in a state of harmony with Eden-like environment with the Eden-like environment. Well, they never did. On this continent, the newly arrived people who crossed the land bridge almost immediately set about wiping out hundreds of species of large animals, and they did this several thousand years before the white man showed up to accelerate the process. And what was the condition of life? Loving, peaceful, harmonious? Hardly. The early peoples of the New World lived in a state of constant warfare, generations of hatred, tribal hatred, constant battles. The warlike tribes of this continent are famous. The Comanche, Sioux, Apache, Mohawk, Aztecs, Toltec, Incas. Some of them practiced infanticide and human sacrifice. And those tribes were not fierce, and those tribes that were not fiercely warlike were exterminated or learned to build their villages high in the cliffs to attain some measure of safety. How about the human condition of the rest of the world? The Maori of New Zealand committed massacres regularly. The Dayaks of Borneo were headhunters. The Polynesians, living in an environment as close to paradise as one can imagine, fought, con fought constantly and created a society so hideously restrictive that you could lose your life if you stepped in the footprint of a chief. It was the Polynesians who gave us the very concept of taboo, as well as the word itself. The noble savage is a fantasy, and it was never true. That anyone still believes it 200 years after Rousseau shows the tenacity of religious myths, their ability to hang on in the face of centuries of factual contradiction. I just always like to point that out. It's a great part of his essay. And um, I think it's relevant because, <clears throat> well, you'll see, I think, why it's relevant as we get into this. So anyway, that's how the book starts, Carrie. Wait, and who wrote that? That, that was essay. Michael that's interesting. He wrote a really good essay about how environmentalism is a religion. And um, I think Tamara is the one that pointed me to that. Tomorrow, sometimes in chat, but I don't see her. So this is one of the first, I think this is the first book I've ever seen. That's, this is intended for college. So again, the subtitle is an introduction to key concepts in social justice education. This is for people taking classes in social justice, right? And um, I've never seen a book, a textbook, I guess that you could call this a textbook, start with a chapter like this. The first chapter, which we're going to review, is how to engage constructively in courses that take a critical social justice approach. This is basically like how to learn, like how to take the class. In fact, there's even a section on grading, how to not whine about your grades. Um, so that's how it starts. And I guess, I guess we could, not sure exactly where to start here. Actually, yeah, I, I do know where to start. I'm going to read, this is what relates to the, this is what relates to the Native Americans. I'm gonna read a parable. I know I'm doing a lot of reading, but this, the context is interesting. Um, a parable of Hoja and the foreigner. This parable, by the way, she did not make up. I'm gonna explain how she, um, how she then uses this parable. But once upon a time, a foreign scholar and his entourage were passing through a town in Anatolia. The scholar asked to speak to the town's most knowledgeable person. The townsfolk immediately called Nasedrin Hoja to come meet the foreign scholar. The foreigner did not speak Turkish, Persian, or Arabic, and Hoja did not speak any European languages. So the two wise men had to communicate with signs while the townsfolk and the entourage watched in fascination. The foreigner used a stick to draw a large circle on the sand. Hoja took the stick and divided the circle into two halves. The foreigner drew a little a line perpendicular to the one Hoja drew, and the circle was now split into four. 
He moved the stick to indicate the first three quarters of the circle, then the remaining quarter. In response, Hoja made a swirling motion with the stick on four finger on four on the four quarters. Then the foreigner made a bowl shape with his two hands held together side by side, palms up, and wiggled his fingers. Then Hoja responded by cupping his hands with his palms down and wiggling his fingers. When the meeting was over, the members of the foreigner's entourage asked him what they had talked about. Nasedrin Hoja is a very learned man, he said. I told him that the earth was round, and he told me that there was an equator slicing it in half. I told him that three quarters of the earth was water and one quarter of it was land. He said that there were undercurrents and winds. I told him that waters warm up, vaporize, and move towards the sky. And to that, he replied that they cool off and come down as rain. The people of the town were also curious about how the conversation went. They gathered around Hoja. The stranger has very good taste, Hoja explained. He said that he wished there was a large tray of baklava. I said that he could only have half of it. He said that the syrup should be made with three parts sugar and one part honey. I agreed and said that they all had to be mixed well together. Next, he suggested that we should cook it on a blazing fire. And I added that we should pour crushed nuts on top of it. So she used, it's a funny story, right? She uses the story to show that people have different modes of communication. Um, and she then goes on to say, well, now imagine, you can, you can guess this, Carrie. Now imagine if the foreigner didn't just have equal standing with him, but the foreigner came in and conquered this guy, basically, right? Conquered this village. Now you can imagine that all of the people that were in the village would have to learn, there would be the foreigners kind of rules, the foreigners context, and they would, they would be disadvantaged. And gen for generations, they would be disadvantaged because there was the foreigners context of knowledge and the foreigners way of doing things. And these people would now be disadvantaged because they were communicating in a different way about different things and they had a different way. And that's how she introduces uh, the concept of social justice in, when it pertains to races. Does that make sense? I guess so. It just seems like a really boring way to start a book. I don't know. I thought it was a good story. It was an interesting story. But I won't go through I won't go through her pillar. She's got um she's got guidelines in here for the students. But one thing that struck me is the first guideline is strive for intellectual humility. And Okay, before really before you ahead. read about that, that's interesting to me because I would say, having been an SJW for a very long time, they they that's something they lack, and they don't encourage that. So, what before you tell me what she says, just they yeah. don't encourage um, intellectual humility. In fact, it's it's almost like you learn these tenets, you learn these things that are supposed to be truth, but they're just they're just opinions. They're just words. Like she made up the word white fragility, but then it's taught as if it's a fact. And so once you know all the facts, it's like, you know, everything. And then, and when you engage in a conversation with an SJW, um, they are usually operating from a place of intellectual and moral superiority, even though it's unearned <laughs> intellectual and moral. They don't, they haven't done anything to earn it, but that's why you'll see them say stuff like, um, it's not my job to educate you because they view themselves as being up here and knowing everything and you being down here. If, if you disagree, it's not that, it's not that you have a different opinion, which could be true. And maybe you have something to share with them. 
that could teach them. It's that you're just dumb and you don't know these concepts yet. And yes. 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 And that the, the takeaway that I got from this entire first chapter, first of all, I've never seen an academic so condescending to students and so obsessed with demonstrating that they are experts. So when she says strive for intellectual humility, she doesn't mean her. She means you, dear reader, strive for intellectual humility. And what she proceeds to do is, and, and this is, I think this is what really gives credence to a lot of people. So look, let's be honest. A lot of people don't understand the scientific method. They're not scientists. Most people are just, they're not, you're not even educated in the scientific method in high school really anymore. And so she brings up this example of a person in an astronomy class with a PhD professor. And the professor says, there are eight planets. And she says, well, there's a student in the back who says, no, there's nine. Cause I always learned there's nine, blah, 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 blah. And she goes through the story about how the student's wrong because he's holding on to these beliefs about planets and he's, he's failing to understand that the professor says there's this definition of planets and blah, 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 Pluto no longer meets. And she uses this, she's trying to get some of the brand of hard sciences to rub off onto the social sciences. And what she says, she makes this argument that, well, what we say us intellectuals, we are subject to peer review. And what she says is, in academia, in order for an, an argument to be considered legitimate, i.e. how many planets there are, blah, 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 or, or whether racism exists, two totally different things, it must stand up to scrutiny by others who are specialists in the field. And she uses peer review uh, in an attempt to it's like a patina that she's painting social sciences with in order to get credibility. And, and so what she's saying is all of our stuff, Carrie, this, we're, we're scientists, we're right. We have peer reviewed papers that say this. In order for you to argue, you have to understand all the peer reviewed literature and all the context and you can't actually, you're not qualified to argue with us. And she repeatedly talks about you just not understanding. Maybe you should look up vocabulary words if you don't understand. Um, these concepts are very difficult. They challenge which, you emotionally. Which, by the way, is an argument. It's the appeal to authority. It's a, it's a fallacy. Yes, yes. So the other thing I'd like to point out, though, is peer review is not the scientific method. Peer review is a process for getting published in, in a journal. Just because you had something peer-reviewed doesn't mean it has anything to do with science. Um, compendiums of science fiction, peer review, quote, the submissions, like boards of people review stuff before it gets published. That's not science. What has wow. happened in social justice is that they've gotten together and peer reviewed each other's crap. And if you guys need any evidence of that, there's a great, great Twitter feed called New Peer Review. And all they yes. do is take excerpts from actual peer-reviewed, mostly SJW papers <laughs> and post them. And it's so awful and ridiculous. You would think it's satire. You wouldn't think it was real. 
That's why right. James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and uh, what's his name? Peter Bogosian. That's why they were able to get so much crap published and peer reviewed. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we have a, if you want, we will, maybe we'll post the link somewhere. Carrie can find it. We did a really good interview with James Lindsay about some of his papers. Um, and yeah, about exactly this. They did a but, paper about assuming the gender of dogs in a dog park. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> dog rape, something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just I want to read this part. This is her comparing just the arrogance here. You ready? You ready for the comparison she's going to paint? We would not use opinion in astronomy class and believe it unlikely that a student arguing that he or she disagrees with Stephen Hawking on a matter of astronomy would have his or her position taken seriously, much less feel free to make a claim to begin with. Yet, in the social justice classroom, scholars such as Peggy McIntosh, Michael Foucault, and Beverly Tatum are regularly disagreed with well before comprehension of their work is mastered. She's comparing, now Peggy McIntosh literally scribbled her feelings onto a piece of paper, called it a study, or called it theory, and was done. The scientific process- Peggy, you, Peggy McIntosh, for people who don't know, is the yes, is very you. rich, wealthy, elite white woman who coined the term white privilege. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she's comparing the social justice stuff to science. And what she's trying to do is intimidate students with this idea that we're scientific experts. And you see this in also environmentalists. This is a, this is, um, appeal to authority, right? This is arguments from ad populum, actually. It's most, most people agree, therefore this is correct. She's saying it's, this is a combination of, of um, appeal to authority and appeal to numbers, right? So she's saying, we have authority, we are scientific, and us, we have numbers, we have peer reviews, that makes this correct. And I just wanna clarify, the scientific method, you come up with a theory and take a guess, right? You then, uh, figure out what the consequences of that guess would be, and you compare it to actual observed results. And if they're wrong, you throw your theory out, right? And if you can come up with a theory that better explains the results and is predictive, then you replace, that's the scientific process in a nutshell. So the scientific method relies on being able to reproduce and actually utilize the laws of nature that you have figured out in order to produce things like this microphone and the internet. Social justice, the entire social sciences have nothing to do with that scientific method. They use some of the tools, they have peer reviews, they will do um, surveys of some things, they'll do, sometimes they'll do studies, but their theories have not gone through a, an, a, a repeatable, like a method to demonstrate the repeatability and adherence to reality. They're just Peggy McIntosh scribbling on a piece of paper. That's what they are. And she wants to, she wants you to compare Peggy McIntosh to Stephen Hawking. And that's the point of this, that the entire point of this first chapter is basically we're experts. You're not. If you don't get it, it's because you have biases, feelings, um, you're, you're just reacting emotionally. You don't, you're just too stupid. You need you're to learn, learn these words. You're uneducated. You don't know. You're not an intellectual like we are. Yes. And, and by the I, way, these people are not, they're not real intellectuals. These are pseudo intellectuals. These are 
someone like Robin DeAngelo, I mean, I find, I find this, I find it a bit fraudulent <laughs> that, that she tries to pass herself off in, in this way, because I don't, I mean, we've talked about this before and I'm biased because I obviously have a big problem with my old ideology, but they don't actually engage in thinking. They don't actually engage in um, the, the process of trying to arrive at truth and thinking through something or trying to arrive at an opinion. They literally, they deal in regurgitation. And so it sounds like with this first chapter, she's like, I'm a great intellectual, I'm a great thinker, but all she really is saying is, I'm gonna tell you some stuff in this book and I expect you to believe it and regurgitate it because, I, because I'm the authority in the subject. Basically, I mean, actually one of the, she only has a few guidelines. The, so the first one is what we said, strive for intellectual humility. And that is her telling you, uh, I know what I'm talking about, you don't. So your opinion, she's basically saying your opinions are wrong because you don't understand the very complex and academic intellectual concepts that I, I have. Um, guideline two is everyone has an opinion. Opinions are not the same as informed knowledge. Now this is interesting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? Well, this is, I, okay. This is, it's basically, this is one of the things they do when you disagree with them. Um, it's funny that she's written this out in a book, book form, but one of the things they do is they, I mean, they basically try to invalidate you having a different opinion by, like you said, if you have a different opinion, uh, it's because you're, they'll, they'll pick whatever. If you're, if you're a man, it's because you're a man. If you're white, it's because you're white. Like they'll pick some immutable identity characteristic and they'll say, that's why you have this wrong opinion. Um, anyway, that just, that just cracks me up. Opinion's yes. not the same thing as informed knowledge. And that's what she has. I get it. Right. So she has informed knowledge. And so she gives some examples. And she does say, it's interesting because she's, to appear academic, I guess you need to like list things and numbers, but she, they're not even, the things that her, her guidelines aren't even mutually exclusive. Like in this one, she talks a lot about how anecdotes aren't facts, but the next guideline is that anecdotes aren't facts. But anyway, so in this one, she uses examples like when we make claims based on anecdotal evidence with regards to concepts studied, for example, for example, claiming now there's reverse racism, we are in effect expressing an opinion that is not supported by scholarly evidence. Now there is, look, and she goes on to argue that actually um, there's not reverse racism because there is no actual quota system. There's just desires and, and um, intent to hire more minority people. That's not the same as a quota. That's that's different and blah blah. Like she. By just... the way, I have a, a little tip there about when they say that about reverse racism, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before in a video, but um, if you are in a discussion with an SJW and they say there's there's no such thing as reverse racism, I always agree because I don't. There's no such thing as reverse racism. There's just racism. Sure, that's not what she means, but yes, I know, but <laughs> but. Hey, we agree. There's no such thing as there's simply racism. There's simply racism. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah. So her. No. Not everyone. Has, you know. Everyone has an opinion, but opinions aren't the same as informed knowledge. So I'm. I'm smart. And basically, I've gone through a peer review process. Is all this means? My buddies agree with me. The people who are being funded by taxpayer dollars to, you know, contemplate ridiculousness, have agreed with me about this and published my crap. Okay, guideline three, 
let go of anecdotal evidence and instead examine patterns. Now, this is funny to me because they're also the same people that are pushing um, lived experience as valid. And in fact, even earlier when she talked about um, peer review, she says, when we say that peer review makes an argument legitimate, remember that we mean this for academic contexts. There are other forms of evidence that are legitimate. I think she means lived experience there, but peer review is not a form of evidence, by the way. So she doesn't understand basic argumentation and, and logic, which is not surprising. So she goes into anecdotal evidence and examined patterns, and she, she describes how, um, well, if you have a pain in your leg, Western doctors might take an x-ray, Chinese medicine um, might look at your tongue, uh, a chiropractor might start working on your spine, right? And these are frameworks, and we just need to learn to view the world that there's, there's different frameworks to view the world in. And, and that, and, and she basically talks about like your stasis, your standing in society affects what framework you think is, um, is, the, is the correct one and, and prevents you from seeing other people's frameworks. Um, yeah, peer review, you're right, Art. Peer review is the cool kids all agree. So maybe this is going to be controversial. I just, I, I really, we need to talk about this. White people came to North America and killed people here and conquered them, sometimes bought their land, although they didn't have an under concept of property rights. Um, that's, that's true. Throughout all of history, however, the way that human groups interacted with each other was by force. The conquerors win. And normally the conquerors actually eradicated completely or forced assimilation at least of the, the area that they conquered. Not always, sometimes like the Romans would leave some people and put a governor in charge or whatever. But that's how, including Native Americans, that's how they operated, they conquered. And yes, a consequence of conquering is one culture gets to be the main culture and the other one doesn't. That's a consequence of conquering. There's no way to undo that. There's no way to go back and say, okay, well, this other culture is just as valid. And one of the things that they do, I, I think a lot of people in the West assume that when we talk about culture, we mean food and art and that kind of the stuff. And we can have an appreciation for other cultures. When she talks about culture, and, I, and she's correct in this actually, when she talks about culture, she includes epistemology. She includes how you go about determining what's true and what's false. And this actually gave me a lot of appreciation for, this is gonna sound weird, the Proud Boys. Do you remember one of their, their founding tenants, Carrie? I, I know that they say they're Western chauvinists because they believe Western culture is better than other cultures. Yeah, Western chauvinist. That word, that phrase I thought was weird at the time when I first saw it. But Western chauvinists, I, one way you can look at this as there may be many great things about other cultures. There are many great things about other cultures. In terms of how to look at the world and determine objective truth, 
and, and, and forward human progress, Western culture is superior. It's okay to be a Western chauvinist. The reason that Westerners conquered other cultures was precisely because they had developed better thought processes of testing their theories and using logic and making sure it corresponded to reality. They weren't the best, we've improved on them, but they were better than a rain dance or better than the other methods for obtaining knowledge. They were better. That's why uh, they conquered. Okay, wait, I, I don't know if I back up for a second. So you believe that the reason why is because the culture was better? That's why we conquered? I don't think so. If culture includes, if culture includes uh, the scientific method, which she's arguing it does, she's arguing that culture includes epistemology. If culture includes an embedded epistemology and method for determining what's true and false about nature, then yes, culture had an impact. If it doesn't, if it's other stuff, then I would just say, no, probably didn't have an impact. But the reason that Europeans even got to North America was because of technology. Okay, I mean, I'll give you that. Techno technology is how they even got to America, yes, but- Well, and, and as you pointed is how out, they but, as, but as you pointed out, um, throughout history, cultures and peoples have conquered one another. So do you think yes. that the, the uh, triumphant one in each of those cases was because they had a better culture? I think it's just some of them, it was by brute force, they had better- no, um, Yeah, not always, but in the case of Westerners, quote, conquering and colonizing, because this they call it colonizing, but conquering, whatever. Um, in that case, it was technology that was clearly an advantage. It's not like it's not like Europeans came over with the same technology as Native Americans and beat them. They came over with guns and cannons and more advanced technology. That's what enabled the victory. And that okay. technology is a result of a mental process. It's a result of an epistemology that is more close to rational and consistent with reality. So that's why now a small group of Western mercenaries could go take over a backwards tribe in the middle of Australia if they needed to. It's wrong. I'm not saying this is morally correct, by the way. I just clarify. I'm not saying it's moral. But that's why they could do that, because they could go in there with grenades and AR-15s. Actually, those aren't weapons of war, so we'll use something else. Right? They can go in there with MP MP5s or whatever. They could go in and take over an area because of technology. Fewer people because of technology. My point is, what she's asking us to do is, is treat all cultures the same and that's okay when people think of art and literature and we can have appreciation. That feels, it resonates as okay to a lot of people. But when you include epistemology, it's not okay. All cultures are not the same. Reason is superior. This first chapter, she explicitly, she rejects objective reality. I'll find some stuff, but Victor's right history. Yeah, and, and by the way, Artema, I'm not saying it's morally correct. I'm saying it's what happens. By the way, she has a whole section on grading about I, stop complaining that you're an A student. 
Okay. While you're, while you're looking for that, I just wanted to share um, as an aside, a little treat. Okay. <laughs> Cause we're talking about peer review, right? Yeah. Um, so I just went to the, this, this is the Twitter feed. I was telling you guys about it's new real peer review. They had to do a new one because the Twitter shut down their old one. I think. Why? I don't remember. It was a while, but you know, they're wrong thinkers. Um, but they basically, they take real papers that have been peer reviewed <laughs> and uh, this is just one I wanted to treat you to, Carter. This is an abstract okay. from a peer-reviewed paper. Drawing on multimodal analysis of graffiti in male public restrooms at the, I'm not even going to pretend that I know how to pronounce that school in Rio de Janeiro. This paper investigates how notions of place and gendered sexualized subjects are discursively reconstructed in interactions with the materiality and the histor historicity of the public realm. <laughs> <laughs> the analysis uh. focuses on the indexicalities of public signage and the ways they inform understandings of and access to certain spaces. By investigating the fragmented history of intextualizations of these toilet, graffi of <laughs> toilet graffiti, as well as the indexicalities of their lexical, graphic, and contextual aspects, we argue that places can be queered since they are semiotically constructed and discursively performed. The paper illustrates how static assumptions about place, gender, and sexuality can be disrupted and re-signified, which highlights the porno-heterotopic character of these public restrooms. <laughs> in which semiotic processes that deregulate gender and sexual dissidence are emplaced. Wow. <laughs> I think someone deserves an award for that. So it's like word salad. It's word salad. And you notice they put in a lot of these words that they make up. Like white privilege is something they made up. White fragility is something she made up. Heterotopia. Keywords. Heterotopia. Pornotopia. Toilet graffiti. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to share that. <laughs> Pornotopia sounds like a bad, a disgusting take on the children's movie Zootopia. Um, <laughs> so guide, I'm going to read guideline five. How, how, sorry, recognize how your social position informs your reaction to your instructor and the course content. So a lot of this is about like how you're reacting to your instructor. Stop, stop questioning your instructor. Positionality is the concept that our perspectives are based on our place in society. And she goes through and she says, guideline five addresses the perception that the content of the class is subjective, value-based, and political, while the content of mainstream courses is objective, value, neutral, and unpartisan. Her argument here is, uh, I guess I don't need to, well, here, I'll read a little bit more. In order to understand the concept of knowledge as never purely objective. So you might think she's trying to say physics is objective and so are we, especially based on what I just said, like peer review where experts don't question us. She's not. She's saying physics is subjective and so are we. You just know that we're subjective because we admit it. But physics doesn't admit that they have a perspective. So she says, in order to understand the concept of knowledge as never purely objective, neutral, and outside of human interests, it is important to distinguish between discoverable laws of the natural world, such as the law of gravity, and knowledge, which is socially constructed. Wow. By socially constructed, we mean that all knowledge understood by humans is framed by the ideologies, language, beliefs, and customs of human societies. Even the field of science is subjective. For example, consider scientific research 
and how and when it is conducted, what subjects are funded and which are not, who finances various types of research, who's invested in the results of the research, how do these investments drive what is studied? So can, I, she's, can I interject? She's saying, this sorry, is how ahead. they, well, this is how they um, infiltrate the hard sciences because yes. they say that's how, and that's their, their intent is to destroy the hard sciences, like they've destroyed the humanities. Um, and the way that they infiltrate is by saying, uh, even science is subject to this, you know, um, institutionalized racism and sexism. And because they view the world through these racism and sexism glasses, they view science through those glasses. And so then they say, well, we have to come into your science classes and we have to teach about this. We have to teach right. about how th it's been, it's racist and sexist. And that's how they get in and start destroying the hard sciences. Right. So, I mean, when she says that, by the way, when she says even the field of science is subjective, she adds the study of which is known as the sociology of scientific knowledge. But what she's doing is science is not, just want to clarify, science is not who gets funded. Science is not who finances research. Science is not how do the investments drive what is studied and how. That's not, none of that is science. None of that. Science is objective. Science, the measure of science is, is your theory predictive of reality? Can you use it to make a microchip? Great, that's science. Science is not who's funding our nanoparticles research program. That's politics of a university that might be conducting science or maybe in a private institution. But she's, she's saying, she's using this crap to say that, well, science is subjective. She carves out a thing for the law of gravity because she knows that those laws themselves, it's very hard to argue that they're subjective. People would see through her crap. But, but she doesn't, she says basically the law, this is basically her argument. The law of gravity is objective, but the entire process by which you determine whether the law of gravity is true is all subjective. Science is subjective, but the outcomes that are working right now, those are objective outcomes. Don't worry, I'm not saying that those are subjective because that would be insane. But the entire process that got there, that's all subjective. Um, and that's, and this is the problem. Yeah, we can, we could repeat all classic, thank you, so Tamara's mentioning, we could have them repeat all the classical physics experiments, teaching fundamentals and universal facts to those in dire need for it. So this is the fundamental difference between social sciences and science is that science is a slave to reality. You need to be reproducible. You, you're, you need to be, um, um, you need to be able to predict what will happen. And when that fails, when your theory doesn't predict properly, your theory's wrong. That's how science works. Theory's wrong. The end of the day, done. Theory's wrong, doesn't predict. Come up with a better one. That's how science works. Um, but she is arguing that science is subjective and she's using that to say, basically she's using that to try and disarm you from criticizing anything they're doing. And what she will do is she cites, she cites studies, not really very well in this book, but what she would generally do is she'll cite studies that say, oh, there's institutional racism because my friend studied it and she'll need a citation. But the citations are things kind of like Peggy McIntosh's white knapsack, uh, or white privilege knapsack article, or there are things where um, there is no attempts to actually approach it from a scientific 
perspective, they just assume causes. So scientists don't assume causes. As a social justice looking at physics would say, oh, um, this USB drive falls when I drop it, it falls towards the ground. Therefore, and they'll just make something up that's convenient for them. Therefore, institutionalized racism, right? That's, that's how social sciences works. It must be because this is a black micro USB and or mini USB and uh, I don't know, the floor is also black. I don't know. They'll, they just make stuff up. That's not adequate in science. But all of this research that she points to that she's trying to get this you to believe that this is science and that there's an air of credibility here. And it's uh, as a science engineer, but I was, I was an electrical engineer with a concentration in device physics. As a scientist, it really pisses me off because science is really freaking hard and it's not a peer review process that, that generates what's considered truth. It's adherence to a scientific method, objective reality, prove like demonstrable results. That's science, not, you know, Peggy McIntosh agrees with me, which is what she's passing off as science. Gravity is merely caused by the aggressive force of male patriarchy. Thank you. That's a way better. I should have used that analogy. I don't know. Do you, this is reminding me of something. Do you yes. remember um, after, after Trump was elected, of course, there were all these resist marches and stuff. Do you remember the March for Science in 2017? I so, vaguely remember it, but I don't I, remember anything about it. I remember the title. One of my friends helped organize it. Uh, she was a scientist. Uh, mm -hmm. She is an SJW scientist. <laughs> She's right. completely bought into this stuff. And she talks, she posts stuff about going to um, archaeology uh, conferences and everything she posts is about learning about racism and sexism in archaeology. And I'm like, are you actually learning any archaeology? <laughs> are you just talking about right. all this stuff? Anyway, I'm trying to remember, I bring it up and maybe somebody who's watching something in the, in the chat, if you guys know, remind me of the controversy. So they, the March for Science, there was a controversy because, well, A, because it was completely partisan. It was basically an anti-Trump march. So right. there was criticism that, hey, this isn't really about science, guys. This is about ideology already. But secondly, they published something ahead of the march. It was like a list of, uh, you know, uh, statements of belief or something. And one of them had to do with like pronouns or gender. I can't remember, but it was something that was very anti-scientific. If anybody remembers, let me know. Mm. And, and so there was a controversy about it because it's like, I'm thinking of it because this is exactly, it's exactly what they want to do is to destroy science. And then to say that they, to say that they represent, that they are the scientists. Do you know what I mean? To say yes. that these non-scientific things are science. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't know if it was, uh, I don't know if it was Richard Feynman or maybe I read it in that Michael Crichton article. Um, it seems too new to be Richard Feynman, but anyway, there's this, someone, someone made the point that this idea of settled science is a false concept. So, but you'll hear it a lot, especially with global warming, but you're now also starting to hear it with respect to gender. You'll hear, you'll hear people say, this is settled science. It's settled science, Carrie. What are you arguing with? You can't argue. It's settled science, Carrie. It's settled. Um, and whoever it was, was make, made the point that um, 
settled science is a contradiction. Science is never settled. That's not how science works. And if there's some really good, there's some good Richard Feynman lectures on the scientific method and stuff I uh, encourage people to find online, but science doesn't ever prove anything right. It only proves things wrong. So you come up with a theory, you use the theory to predict a bunch of results, and then you measure whether those were correct. If they're correct, you say the theory is yeah, true for now, right? It's, it's true for now, but it doesn't mean you could come up with more stuff later. They're like, oh, we didn't realize this. Once you find one thing that it doesn't predict, theory's wrong. Science only ever shows that things are wrong. That's all it really shows fundamentally. It doesn't prove anything. It shows that things are wrong. So I think the example that Richard Feynman gives in one of his lectures is like Newtonian physics, right? He'll, you know, Newtonian physics looked good. It was predicting things for a long time until eventually we had Einstein and, and some other people come along and it turns out, wait a minute, there's some anomalies and actually the Newton theory needs to be replaced with something slightly more complex to account for um, higher level uh, terms that, that didn't show up in, in the Newtonian construction. Okay, we should be proud. It's amazing that Newton lasted as long as he did, like that those laws lasted as long as they did without being wrong, but then they were wrong. Um, and this idea that, well, it's proven that there's global warming or it's, it's proven that there's, that there's uh, this is man-made global warming and we have to raise taxes on carbon, that's proven. That's not settled science. There's not settled science. It's not settled science that there are multiple genders. In fact, much more the opposite. Uh, all science is based on the idea of reproducibility. Yes, Andrew. Yeah, there's no such thing as settled science. Thank you, guys. Um, the book is described as award-winning. Is it really? I don't see if they have a... They don't have any awards on the cover. Um, people who love this book, uh, Christine Sleater from... California State University, Monterey Bay, Byron Joyner, University of Washington. People love this crap. The, the final part of this, uh, we can be done with this chapter, but the final part of this chapter is about grades. And it's about how stop thinking that you're going to get good grades because you worked hard and blah, blah, blah. You have to demonstrate comprehension of the material. Um, which I don't really have a problem with this generally. But what is interesting to me is they do go out of their way to say, you're not getting a bad grade just because you disagree with us. Um, you're getting a bad grade because, you know, you didn't show that you understood uh, <laughs> the material. And so, because you disagree with us. Right. Yes. So that, that's the thing, right? So that's the thing. Um, you're getting a bad grade because very you disagree with us. But we've just told you in the, the beginning of this chapter that if you disagree with us, it's because you're wrong, you're uneducated, you're racist, you're sexist, you have bias, unconscious bias, or et cetera. So yep. it's, there's no room for disagreeing with Robin D'Angelo. <laughs> like, no, because she practices peer review. But it, I think I, I, to go back to the very first thing you said about, about humility, she doesn't have any epistemic humility. 
Well, she's not, she's not saying she needs to have any. She's, the, the, the point of this is you're a dumb student who's been you know, taught the wrong thing. I don't need humility. You need humility, stupid white girl. That's the point. <laughs> something like that. Um, oh, and by the way, wait. There's one other area. Wait, there's one other thing that I that I loved. Hold on, I can't find it. Okay, and then after that, um, I have to go because I just got a text that I have to go into work earlier than I thought. So, um, okay, I'm sorry. Sorry, guys, but hey, it's almost been an hour anyway. So uh, I can stay and chat with people, uh, but I can't find it. But there's she, there's some point in, in which she says, almost word for word, don't worry, this isn't brainwashing because we couldn't possibly, like taking one or two classes of social justice can't possibly brainwash you. Um, you've, you know, it can't undo all the stuff you've been taught. Yes, so it don't can. be worried that it's brainwashing, which is weird. It's like It's um, like those creepy guys that are like, don't worry, I would never hit you. Yeah. Like, so why are you saying that? <laughs> like, so this study that I've mentioned to you before, um, Professor uh, Jordan Peterson, his one of his grad students, I believe her name is Brophy. She did a study about uh, if you look on YouTube, there's a video called Where Do SJWs Come From? And there's an interview with her and with Peterson. And so they talk about this study they did where they were trying to understand um, the understand better understand people who I would call SJWs like, like I used to be. And so I've mentioned this study before, but they basically found that there were two types of SJWs. There were the PC authoritarians and the PC egalitarians. And so uh, one of the, there were lots of interesting things about it, but one of the interesting things about that study is that they found that PC egalitarians like PC liberals, like myself were very likely to have taken a seminar or a class or a workshop or an unlearning bias training. So when they say it doesn't, Hey, you can't, you can't uh, be brainwashed with one thing. It's like, you kind of can, you know, well, that's why they say it. Yeah. It's, it's like that, you know, it's like the person who's, I don't know that in fact, in um, someday we'll do a, a show about gift of fear by bagging get the Gavin De Becker, but um, gift of fear is about, basically protecting yourself and he's got these pre-incident indicators i have a little i made these little cards i'm such a nerd force charming our force teaming charm and niceness too many details typecasting uh unsolicited promise discounting no one of the things one of the red flags for a predator uh these are all red flags one of them is unsolicited promise that's what that is it's an unsolicited promise right if a guy if a guy meets you in the store and is like hey can i talk to you for a minute don't worry i'm not gonna stab you like, I didn't ask you to promise that you wouldn't stab me. Why are you saying that? Yes. Is that was that on the table? Is that an option that you might stab me? That you need to say, "Don't worry, I'm not going to stab you," right? That's she's she. That's it's a red flag that she says, "Don't worry, this can't brainwash you." It's like my physics book doesn't say that. My physics book didn't say, "Don't worry, reading about quantum theory will not brainwash you." You, you just reminded that. me. You just reminded me of a, a friend of mine just told me this story. He's a musician. He was in a, a another town, and the venue where he was playing, he was supposed to stay with this older woman who lived across the street from the venue. And after the show, she was trashed, wasted, and was totally hitting on him. And she kept 
she kept saying about her house, it's okay for you to go over that. You'll be safe there. You'll be safe. And he's like, it's right. a promise. He's like, why does she keep saying I'll be safe? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you found somewhere else to stay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is a predatory thing to do. You're right. <laughs> yeah. It's totally, it's totally, totally. I won't sneak in on you and molest you in the middle yeah. of the night. Uh, Don't worry. Kind of was assuming that. Thanks. <laughs> Creepy. But, hey, don't uh, worry. You won't be brainwashed. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know. Um, how did you guys? Maybe you guys can in the chat can tell me. Like, did you like going through chapter one? I mean, I'm gonna read this whole thing. I don't know that I could. I feel like it's cruel to foist foist it on our audience, um, but I am gonna read the whole thing just because I want to know. Well, now um, I want to read it. So maybe we maybe we should read it together and just um, either summarize it chapter by chapter or or do just do one episode in the whole book. I don't know. All right. Well, but I'm very interested in it now and taking it apart. <laughs> I mean, I thought it would be super boring, but honestly, I'm not bored by it at all. It's fascinating how horrible it is. I mean, just that she started with acknowledging the ancestral territories. And I like, guess that. What do I get? I, like, what I, do I, I yeah, win? You called it. What do I win? Land acknowledgement. Oh, um, here's the book we're talking about in case people joined late. This is called Is Everyone Really Equal? Um, by Olam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo. The subtitle is An Introduction to Key Concepts in Social Justice Education. Uh, it is like reading a train wreck, Andrew. Um, Carrie, I, I have one more possibly offensive thing to say, but um, I can I can wait because it could be long. Do you need to go? I want to give you- Yeah, a I need to go to work, but um, this has been fun. Thank you guys for joining us. And um, we are going to we are gonna put that poll up soon for the next book for book club. So, we'll, and it's we'll not going to it be- by, We'll do it by tomorrow. Yeah. If and Siri it, doesn't do it, I will do it tomorrow. Yeah. And it won't be this book, <laughs> but but we're going to read this book. No, no. I don't want to read social justice crap. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Bye guys. Bye Carter. Right, bye Carrie. I'm going to stay just for a sec. Um, Cause I, I'm going to, I want to expound a little bit of, I don't, sorry if this is going to bore you, you can tell me in chat to shut up, but I want to expound a little bit about why I'm a, I, I am a Western culture chauvinist in some ways. Um, and I say that as someone who uh, I'm married to someone from another culture, I appreciate lots of things about lots of other cultures. I've traveled around quite a lot in my life. Uh, there's lots of great things about a lot of other cultures. So, um, but when I say that I'm a, a chauvinist, uh, what I mean is specifically with respect to epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge. This is how you know you know something, right? It's specifically with the philosophy. And I guess the way that I think of it, and maybe people can argue with me, uh, I'm a classical liberal chauvinist. Thank, thanks, Andrew, chauvinist. Um, humans have, humans unique thing that makes humans special, their primary means of survival is their rational mind. It's their thinking mind, right? That's what, you know, we don't have sharp claws. We can't run really fast. We don't have thick hides. You know, like we're not, other animals have things that, that there are other special things that enable them. There are advantages that enable them to survive. For humans, it's the rational mind. We survive by using our brain, manipulating the environment around us or, or adapting our behavior to that environment. That's how we survive. And so um, you're not obligated to recognize that and behave like that because you have free will. We also have this ability to 
murder ourselves. We can, we can commit suicide. Most animals don't commit suicide, I guess lemmings, but um, we can kill ourselves. We have free will to do that. So there's no, there's no law of the universe that says cultures will behave in ways and believe things that support their primary means of survival, which is the human mind, right? They, there's no rule, right? You could easily have a culture in which the human mind is despised and you kill anyone who thinks there have been cultures like that. Now, who's someone saying all cultures are not created equally along all dimensions. Correct. So there are a bunch of things about cultures that don't have practical significance. Recipes, uh, music, like some, some, some traditions, right? Things that don't have an impact on to how we actually survive as a species. But uh, epistemology does. Your, your, your understanding of where you get knowledge from, what constitutes knowledge? Is it the shaman that goes and takes peyote and comes out of the tent and says, this is the knowledge, this is what we need to do? Or is it, a, a, it, or is it obtained from a system that uh, seeks to determine objective reality and follows logic and reason and uses evidence and follows the scientific method? That's a different way of obtaining knowledge. And one of those methods, you know, having a, a drug-induced revelation versus following the scientific method, those are two completely different ways to obtain knowledge. One of those is actual knowledge, it, and, and you can demonstrate it's actual knowledge because you can use it to uh, predict the future. You can use it to create machines that work. You can use it to do things. You can use it to forward human life and extend the lifespan of humans and increase standard of living and feed yourselves and clothe yourselves and build housing. The other... The other, um, you can't use it for those things. It doesn't work consistently. It may randomly by chance work sometimes, but it doesn't consistently work. I don't think there's any culture, there isn't any human culture that has survived that doesn't use reason at all. You have to, or else you would die. So every culture uses reason to some extent, but Western culture elevated reason. Not completely, I'm an atheist, so yeah, there's, there was religion still in Western culture, but even the Christian church allowed there to be room for more reasoned, rational thought than other religions would allow. And, and, but I'm not a religion expert, and maybe there's counter arguments, so that's fine. Maybe other religions did too. But for whatever reasons, reason and evidence as the standards were elevated in Western culture. And that turned out to work really well because that is compatible with our primary means of survival. That's compatible with how our brain can understand the world and act in it and improve our lives. That's why Western culture flourished. And philosophically out of that, yeah, you can get property rights and a whole bunch of stuff, but just from a scientific perspective, that's based on the proper epistemology, the proper metaphysics. It's based on the proper, um, and when I say proper, I mean a, a philosophic outlook that is in uh, communion with nature, one that matches nature, right? One that accepts nature as uh, objective and the laws of, of nature as something to be discovered and obeyed, right? That's different than a lot of cultures. A lot of cultures didn't do that. And we still haven't done it completely, obviously, but that's the essence of what makes the Western world and has made the Western world more successful. That's the essence of it.
And it's the application of that, not just in the sciences, but the application of that everywhere. That application leads to things like property rights. It leads to things like volunteerism. That's what it leads to. That's why we've been successful. And so one of the things that really is dangerous with this social justice ideology is that it seeks to undermine that process as the only valid process for obtaining information and acting. And that will destroy us. That's all I wanted to say. All right, bacon is another mine. Yes, um, who else we got in chat? What else? I just let me, I'll, before we leave, I'll look at chat here quickly. Western culture has lost the ability to ascribe a positive meaning to life, it seems to me. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, Western culture has has certainly lost the culture war, right? Word. So there aren't you. If you say you're a chauvinist for Western culture, that makes you a jerk. So obviously, um, we're not complete. We're not there. I think you. I. I, I mean, we've talked. I've talked about this before. Uh, Western culture. You know, in the West, we tore down religion um, for reasons that, as an atheist, I think were valid. But what we failed to do is replace it with anything and. Um, without replacing religion, you end up uh, with just other religions and you get uh, worship of the state, you get um, worship of uh, the environment and environmentalism, you get uh, worship of, um, or, or just rejection of, of objective reality altogether, which is what this is. Keep in mind the social justice stuff. If she wrote a chapter on the underlying philosoph philosophic premises behind this, you would laugh even harder. And the, the reason she doesn't write that is if the first chapter was like, we don't believe in objective reality, there can be no real truth and uh, we're not even sure reality exists, which is what this is based on, you would laugh You would laugh at it and you would throw it away. So she can't say that, she's gotta bury it in here a little bit. Um, so there's a reason ancient Greek ideas caught on. Yeah, because they worked, right? It's because they worked. By the way, I've been reading just as a side note um, and then I can go. Uh, I've been reading um, the pre-Socratics and, and, and Socrates a little bit. And it's amazing how a lot of their, a lot of their writing actually isn't much different from a lot of what we see today. We tend to think of a lot of aphorisms and common sense things, or even religious beliefs that we, we thought were modern as semi-modern. Uh, I'm really starting to look at it and going, there's very little new. Uh, this stuff is, is, is quite old. Um, let's see. Lindsay says the non-reasoning part of our nature still needs to be satisfied. Uh, so I actually, I don't know what that means. So I don't want to argue with it too much because I'm not exactly sure what you mean. My guess is that we have different meanings for things. Um, I, I, we definitely do have uh, desires, urges, feelings that uh, people argue are not rational. I don't really think that those are not rational. Uh, I don't think that they're rational. I don't think that they're irrational. They're just inputs. They're just, uh, this is just, you want me to say Frankfurt College? Fine, I'll say Frankfurt College. Um, <laughs> the Frankfurt School. Uh, so I don't really think uh, that those things are irrational. I think the rational thing to do is consider your feelings. So like feelings are, are, are information about your internal state. Your sense data is information about external things. Feelings are, are information about your, your internal state. It's rational to consider those uh, when making decisions about what you should do for yourself and blah, 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 like that. That's all, that's all rational. So I don't have a weird, uh, I don't have a view 
of the human mind as a dichotomy between like the non-reasoning mind or the, the, the non-rational mind and the rational mind. Like, yes, there is, there is obviously a large part of the mind that's not the reasoning part of the mind, but that doesn't make it irrational. It's just feeding inputs to the, uh, the part of your brain that is consciously making decisions. And it's your, this job of your conscious to uh, take that input in and make rational decisions uh, about your needs and how they fit with the, the reality of the world around you and, and all of that stuff. So I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not someone who thinks that we need religion per se. Um, I am, uh, I, 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 I think the problem is people do need meaning and they do kind of seek out, uh, people like to have a easy way to interpret the world. And sometimes it's just not that easy. So, um, yeah, I've heard that it's an evolutionary tool and we need it. I, I'm not sure I agree. I think we do need purpose. I'm not sure that there's proof that we need. I don't know what we is, right? I don't need religion. I know other atheists who don't need religion um, and who build their own purpose and meaning out of their lives and we're fully content and happy and we're not running around hurting other people. Um, the argument that some people need it, I, I don't know. That's a complex argument because it probably depends on a lot of things, uh, psychological things that we just don't understand yet. Um, but certainly we do seem to fall back into religion often. Um, and, and yes, rituals of religion often are comforting, but I think, again, I think often that's, um, I think that's having psychological effects. I'm not saying rituals are bad necessarily either. There's evidence that meditation, scientific evidence that meditation can be helpful. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's religious. Anyway, um, you're assuming people understand their feelings for motivation. I'm not assuming that they do understand that. Um, although you should seek to understand your feelings and motivations, um, but I'm not assuming that you do, right? I can feel a certain way about a thing and take that into account without knowing why I feel that thing. Um, and if it's something that's, uh, really, uh, bothersome to me, I can try and really, you know, I'm, I might be motivated to really uncover that. Um, so science can explain how you love your daughter, but you don't use science to do it. Uh, do you don't use science to love your daughter? No, you don't do everything with science, but science is, but rational thought is the prop. It's the only means it's your primary means of survival. It's not your only means. It's your primary means of survival, right? Feeling doesn't get you anywhere. Um, reason does and feeling you can't turn off anyway. You can't turn off reason. Reason's a choice. Um, but feeling's just an input. That's, that's how I view it. Um, but again, I think we don't understand how the human brain works. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of work in, um, neurology and psychology and stuff to uncover some of this, but that's how I view it. Um, I don't know why, why are you talking about the Weimar Republic, by the way? Um, oh, oh, this, sorry, same thread as Frankfurt College. <laughs> I just watched a special on the Weimar Republic, by the way. It was fascinating. Um, while I didn't realize, I don't, I'm not, haven't been great at history in the past. While, uh, while inflation was going crazy and the country was literally falling apart, people taking wheelbarrows of cash, you know, you get your paycheck, get wheelbarrows of cash and run to go buy stuff because the cash was inflating so quickly that you would, it would lose its value by the end of the day. While that was happening, it was also like the, um, the hedonistic capital of the world all at the same time. Um, and I don't think that those things are unrelated, but that's a subject for another uh, that's the subject for another episode. 
Yeah, it was. So yeah, the Weimar Republic is very similar to what's being pushed by the left right now. Yeah, so there was a lot of, so I'm not a sexual prude. There was a lot of uh, sexual openness that I think is fine. Um, but that also, did, there was also some horrible things. Uh, this person's mentioning sex changes for 12 year olds. Uh, yeah, that's what's being pushed now. Um, and certainly there's a lot of that. And it is being encouraged by atheists, but I've said this before. Um, so I don't like most atheists. I don't like their beliefs. Um, most atheists, I don't think, I don't consider them atheists. I consider them state theists, which I've said before. Um, they've replaced God with, with the state. They believe that worship of democracy and the state is, um, that's how they get their meaning. Uh, that's how they feel good about themselves. That's where they think morals come from. That's how they feel self-righteous. Um, and they, they haven't, they're not actually atheists. They've replaced an irrational belief in a God with an irrational belief in the state. And I'm not trying to offend Christians that are watching, but that's, that's my view as an atheist. All right. Um, I'm going to take off guys. Thank you for watching. Uh, thanks for watching deprogrammed. We will see you next week. As a reminder, I said this at the beginning of the chat, but very few people were here. Uh, next week, Maria Tuscan, who I'm not sure if she's still watching or is in the chat, but she was the woman that we talked about, I don't know, a few months ago with respect to social justice taking over the knitting community. She's going to be on the show uh, next week for Deprogrammed. So looking forward to seeing her um, come back next week. Probably the same time we tend to alternate between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. Pacific based on Carrie's schedule. Apologize for that, but um, someday we'll be a real company and Carrie will not have a side job. So thanks everyone. Have a good one. Take care. And uh, yeah, I'll see you all next week. It's been fun.